0: This morning's verses come to us from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, be reading from 24 to 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Before we get started... I just realized a few moments ago that I had one of those senior moments, and so I want to take a moment to pray for the right children, for grace, hunter, and justice, and uh, forgive me, I have a lot on my mind these days, but that's a terrible excuse. So I want to correct my tragic error and uh, ask you to join me in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do want to pray for uh, the Herring family Uh, once again, Lord. We pray for uh, grace and Hunter and justice, Lord. We do thank you for them and uh, specifically um, for these three wonderful children, Lord. We pray for your hand of blessing upon each one of them. Lord, we pray that you would work in their lives, Lord. Um, We pray that you would direct their mind and their heart and their eyes and attention and the whole of their life toward Christ, Lord. And we pray that you would work through uh, Billy and AJ as a means of grace toward that end, that they would be an example of living out the gospel um, before their eyes. And we pray that you would, as a family, knit their hearts Closer together to one another, Lord. And we pray ultimately that you would, um, Lord, that you would just as a family not only bring them closer to one another, but that you would bring them closer to yourself, Lord God. For we know that as a family, as they draw closer to Christ, they will draw closer to one another. And we pray all of this in. Christ's name. Amen. Now I'll ask you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians, it's still going. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 uh, to 27. Um, Let me just say a quick word of prayer, and you all pray for me throughout the message. (laughs) Father, we pray now that you would direct our attention toward your word. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our ears to hear your voice. We pray that you would help us to understand your word as it was meant to be understood by you. We pray, Lord, I pray that you would grant me clarity of mind this morning and um, articulation of speech, that I would uh, choose my words wisely and carefully, We're recognizing that I am nothing more than a tool and a vessel, and I pray that despite my weaknesses, my flaws, and Lord, I pray that you would work through me and speak through me um, the very words that you would have your people to hear. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name, amen. The Gospel of uh, Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew begins with a uh, scathing sermon by John the Baptist against uh, Israel's religious leaders. I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, the passage that I'm referring to, but it it served as a really good illustration to the text that we're going to be looking at this morning. In Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, as John the Baptist is, is baptizing and in that message that he is preaching, he says this, beginning in verse 7, but, or the scripture says, but when he, that is John, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's a, that's a stinging remark to make against the religious leaders. I mean, you have to realize that these, these are the ministers of God's people. These are the ministers of Israel that John is speaking to. These were the individuals within Israel who were known for meticulously keeping the law, meticulously keeping every aspect of God's law. They were the ones who were extremely they were the most careful in following every jot and tittle of God's law, of the Torah and of the Mishnah. You know, these were the people that the people of Israel looked up to, that, that they admired. In fact, you have to wonder, in fact, if there weren't people in the crowd who were offended for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who may have even become angry at John the Baptist, thinking to themselves, well, well, wait a minute, you know, this is the guy who conducted my son's bar mitzvah. This is, this is the guy who performed my daughter's wedding. You know, this is, I grew up with this guy, we've been friends since childhood, I mean, we, Where do you get off calling them a brood of vipers? You see, because the problem is that too many of us, I think, have been influenced by television. We think that the Pharisees and the Sadducees just walked around all the time with a scowl on their face, always looking at people with disapproval. Always dressed, right, if you, if, you, if you watch the Jesus movies, right, they're always dressed in dark colors, right, and dark black beard. They look like Blackbeard the Pirate. And so we have this image of them, and we tend to think that when John the Baptist was preaching this sermon that everybody was standing around saying, yeah, you tell them, John, it's about time somebody puts them in their place. But, you know, I don't think this was really the case. I think that for the most part, most Israelites thought that these were good Jewish people, that these Pharisees and Sadducees were good Jewish men. These were the ministers of God's people. These were the people that they would go to for counsel, for advice, to ask them religious questions, what what does the law say about this or that? And yet, John says to them in verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Abraham. In other words, don't you dare think that just because you are a physical descendant of Abraham, just because you have Jewish parents, that you automatically have entrance into God's kingdom. Because God doesn't need you, is what John is telling them. God could easily raise up children for Abraham from these stones. And in fact, in a spiritual sense, God does raise up children to Abraham from stones, doesn't he? From cold, hard, dead stones. But then he says to them in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 3, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Every tree, He says, it doesn't bear fruit. And he's looking at the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of God's people. Every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What fruit is he talking about? Because these were the individuals who were doing everything that God requires, more so than anyone else. They are doing all of the right things. And yet, John says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But what is God looking for? Well, This is what Paul is going to deal with in the text that we're going to look at this morning. He says in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, as we continue through this chapter, He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, first of all, what's the connection between what Paul is saying here and what he has said in the previous section, verses 19 down to verse 23? We always want to make sure we make the connection so that we understand this passage in context. Well, recall that in verses 19 to 23, Paul has made the argument there that he strives to be all things to all people so that some might be saved and so that he might share in the blessing, so that he might share in the blessing, that he might share in the joy of glorifying God and leading others to Christ. So that's his, that's his main reason, right? He's all things to all people. Why? Yes, so that some may be, get saved, but also so that he may share in the blessing, the joy of glorifying God with his life and leading others to a saving knowledge of Christ. But now, in the passage we're looking at this morning, he wants to convey that there is an additional reason, second reason, or maybe we could say the third reason, that Paul lives the way that he does. And that is so that when he gets to the end, the day of judgment, he himself will not be disqualified. So while Paul clearly understands, we know this from many places in Scripture, Well, Paul clearly understands that we are, as believers, justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, and we will talk about that here in a few moments. Paul has also learned from Israel's history and from personal experience, right? Because Paul was one of those. You go back and read um, Philippians chapter 3. Throughout the beginning portion of that that chapter, Paul says that he was a Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, kept the law, strove to keep it, and yet at the end of the day, he recognized that it was all meaningless. Paul was one of those individuals. In fact, Paul may have been one of those individuals standing there on the bank of the Jordan River listening to John the Baptist. We don't know. John the Baptist may have made contact with Paul. You brood of vipers. What, me? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So Paul had learned not only from personal experience, but also from Israel's history that it is unwise to presume upon the grace and the mercy of God. In other words, we cannot live or behave any way we want and expect to inherit the kingdom of God simply because of certain words we have spoken or certain things that we have done or because we've lived our lives checking off the boxes checking off all of the right boxes you see because the frightening thing about those who live that way is that they don't really know it i don't think any professing christian who goes to church on a regular basis is a member of a church consciously thinks in their mind i need to check off boxes right check the boxes that they live their lives that way in fact from israel's history this is what paul is going to go on to tell us in chapter 10 we'll talk more about that next next week but notice what he says at the beginning part of chapter 10 he says for i do not want you to be unaware, brothers that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's a scary thought for they were overthrown in the wilderness. In other words, Paul will say here in this text, and we'll continue to say next week, don't think that just because you do church, just because you engage in Christian activities, in Christian ministries, that you're good to go. Because it's not about what we do on the outside. It's not about how we appear to other people. It's what it's what goes on in here that God is looking for. Thus Paul is making three points in our text, or well, really two points and then a conclusion, two points and then a conclusion. And the first is this from verse 24, Exert every effort to win the prize. Exert every effort, Paul will say, to win the prize. Verse 24, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Paul is using the illustration from the games, the athletic games, they were quite common in Corinth and in Greece, um, and the Corinthians would have been very familiar with these games because there, was, uh, there were four important athletic games, athletic events that took place uh, in and around Greece, and one of them was the Isthmus, I always have trouble pronouncing that word, Isthmus Games, which took place in the town of Isthmus which was only about 10 miles from Corinth. And it was, uh, it was, these games were held at the Temple of Poseidon in honor of the god Poseidon. And, uh, and these games were one of uh, four major athletic events that took place in and around Greece. The others took place at uh, the city of Olympia. That name probably sounds familiar. Delphi and Nemea. And so Christians in Corinth would have been very familiar with the athletic metaphor that Paul himself is using. Running in a race, run for the prize. They were big into sports and athletic events in Greece. Paul himself may have also been a fan of athletic events because he seems to be fond of using athletic events as a a metaphor in other places in Scripture, for example, in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14, there Paul says this, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There Paul seems to be using that metaphor of runners straining toward the finish line, reaching out toward the goal. We also see in Galatians chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 5, verse 7, for example, there he says to the church in Galatia, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, that is the elders and, and the, uh, the apostles in Jerusalem, and I set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. He goes on to say in that same book, Galatians chapter five verse seven, "You were running well, who hindered you from obeying the truth. He, he's fond of using these running metaphors to talk about the Christian life. So it may be that Paul himself was a fan of athletic games, of uh, sporting events certainly not now as an apostle. He was obviously extremely zealous for carrying out the calling that God had placed on his life, but it's possible that before his conversion, Paul was uh, athletic and maybe enjoyed watching the games, or maybe growing up as a child, as a young boy, he loved getting into athletic events with other Jewish boys in the neighborhood, and if, uh, if, that, were the, uh, if that were the case, I can only imagine that Paul's personality was the kind that he, he always played to win. He was probably extremely competitive and fought hard and worked hard at everything he did. That would explain a lot in terms of his, his uh, personality as an apostle, that he gives his all in everything that he does. So Paul strikes me as that kind of individual And so he says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? Well, of course they do. But his point is that nobody jogs, nobody skips, nobody takes their time. In a race, all of the runners run. They are all competing. They all want to receive the prize, but only one is going to get it. Only one will receive the prize. So if you want to win the prize, you have to exert yourself to the physical limits of your body's ability in order to win. You have to exert yourself more than any of the other competitors if you intend to cross the line first and win And in this race, Paul says in the Christian life, we should be willing to push ourselves even harder than Olympic athletes because of the prize that we strive for. This is his second point. Notice verse 25. There he will tell us that the prize that we strive for has eternal value. He says there in verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. If you've ever... Uh, well, if you're into sports, or even if you're not, if you've ever read an article or maybe even watched a documentary on some of the legendary athletes of the past, uh, it is astounding what they put themselves through to be the best of the best, um, to be a gold medalist or a three-time gold medalist, or to be the best in whatever field they're in. Nobody becomes the best in any athletic field by putting forth mediocrity by just you know putting forth minimal amount of effort nobody does they all become the best of the best by exercising self control in all things their level of self discipline the enormous amount of time they put into wanting to achieve their goal is just incredible. The level of self-discipline, self-control they demonstrate in their pursuit of a perishable reward. Whatever the reward is, they're not going to take it with them. It's not going to help them in eternity. And yet they live their lives never cheating on their diet, always eating foods, that are right and healthy for them, never missing a workout. Doesn't matter what the weather is like outside. It could be minus 10 degrees. If they've got to run, they're going to run. They're going to do whatever is necessary, and they do it, Paul says, to receive a perishable wreath. Some translations say perishable crown. Yours might say that. The Greek word can be either a crown or a wreath. It's the same concept. It it is some sort of circular uh, adornment that would be placed on somebody's head. So it could be an actual crown made out of gold or silver. It could be a crown of thorns. That would be the actual word that is used there as well, or a crown that is made out of some sort of a garland. Contextually, Paul is likely talking about a crown that is made out of some kind of garland. We know that uh, in these ancient games that were played in and around Greece, normally these, these, these uh, crowns were made out of uh, celery or pine leaves and uh, obviously weren't designed to last more uh, than a few days. Um, and yet they trained incredibly hard to win this. And they competed to win this. Why did they work so hard? Well, primarily for bragging rights. At the end of the day, they wanted to be the one to be placed on the highest pedestal to receive the crown, even if it's just a crown of fig leaves, and hear the applause, the crowd. Be able to return home to their friends and their family with that wreath. Say, I won. Probably celebrations would be thrown for them. And, of course, their names would be recorded. Um, Archaeologists have discovered uh, records of those who have actually won some of these games, just a few. Yet what is sad is at the end of the day, only a few names are known today, and there's only a very few archaeologists in the world who even know who these people are. For the most part, most of these individuals who spent their lives trying to win one of these Olympic games have been forgotten to history. So Paul talks about the fact that they strive so hard to win this perishable crown. However, it may be that Paul has an actual crown in mind. Contextually, the metaphor would indicate a wreath of some kind made out of leaves. But we also know in places like 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, toward the end of Paul's life, Paul says this. And there at the end of 2 Timothy, Paul is in a Roman prison. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. It sounds like he doesn't think he is. And he says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8, "...henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness." which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also on all who have loved his appearing. The crown of righteousness. Clearly, Paul has the afterlife in mind. He's thinking about the reward that lays beyond the grave. But his point, however, is that these athletes, these athletes go through all of this effort, they exert all of this energy for something that simply will not last. But we as believers are striving for an imperishable reward, an imperishable prize. Because ultimately that prize, of course, is Christ himself. And too often we forget that. Christians talk about heaven all the time as if heaven is our reward. But for the believer, heaven is not our reward. Heaven is the place that contains our reward. Because Christ is our reward. Because for the true believer, for the true believer who truly understands and appreciates what Christ has done for him or her. For the true believer who is head over heels in love with Christ, heaven with all of its beauty and splendor and glory and blitz, heaven without Christ is not heaven, it's hell. And no true believer would want to go there. Because for us, we understand that our ultimate prize is one day being able to see our Lord and Savior face to face. To be able to fall down at his feet, to clasp his feet, to kiss his feet, and to worship him. That's heaven. And after 10,000 years, we'll never grow weary of it, of kissing his feet worshiping our God and Savior. That's heaven. So now you know why Paul says in verse 24, so run that you may obtain it. That's the prize. Exert all of your effort, all of your energy, all of your zeal toward that prize. How hard should you pursue Christ? How much energy should you put forward in chasing after Christ? Again, I love the imagery that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He says, one thing I do... And this comes on the heels of Paul just talking about he's wasted his life. You go back and read all of Philippians chapter 3. He goes through all of the things that he's done, all of the works, all of the effort. And then when God saved him on the Damascus Road, he realized at that moment what an enormous waste of time this has all been. I have wasted my life trying to keep the law and earn righteousness and so then Paul says in Philippians 3.13, here's what I do. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. The past is the past. Waste of time. I can't change the past. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, he says, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, straining forward. Paul is using that image of those sprinters that are straining toward the finish line. Paul says, that's what I do. That's how I pursue Christ. That is the amount of energy and effort that I put into chasing after holiness and godliness and striving to become like Christ in every." Why does Paul do this? Two reasons, one positive and one negative. First, because of his great love for Christ. That's the primary reason. In fact, earlier in that same chapter, Philippians chapter 3, I've already shared with you that Paul talked about how he had wasted his life with all of this work, all of this law-keeping, But then he gets to verse 7 of Philippians chapter 3, and he says this. Listen to this. Paul says, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss. Whatever I thought I had earned through law keeping, I counted it as loss. I counted it as a waste of time. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. I count this whole world as loss. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ Paul says I count everything in this world and in this life as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. He is singularly focused on the goal of pursuing Christ in light of the surpassing worth, the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul was driven in his pursuit of holiness, in his desire to be like Christ, to glorify Christ because he was so overwhelmed by the mercy and the love of Christ this is the positive reason why Paul strains toward the goal of pursuing Christ the second reason is what we see in our passage 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 26 and 27 There Paul says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. In other words, he doesn't run in different directions. He's not running aimlessly. He's not going in circles. Paul, he's on a race, and he sees the goal, and his focus is on the finish line, right? If you ever watch a 100-meter sprint, They are focused on the line. They're not looking at anywhere else. And that's what Paul means when he says, I don't run aimlessly, I am going straight for Christ. He sees the prize and he's running for it. And he does not box as one who is beating the air. What does that mean? In other words, Paul is not shadow boxing. He's not just throwing punches into the air as though he's not fighting anybody, right? Boxers do that, even if you're not into sports. You've probably seen that before, right? They, they stand in the gym and they just kind of stand in one place and they throw punches and it's just a way of warming up, loosening their muscles. You do it long enough, you can get an exercise from it, especially if you're wearing the gloves. Those can get heavy after a little while. But you're not going to throw those kind of punches as hard or as aggressively as if you were fighting someone, right? When you're throwing punches into the air, I mean, it's just kind of like, eh, you know? Paul says, I don't, I don't box as though I'm beating the air. Paul boxes as though he is actually in a fight with someone. In another sports metaphor, Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When I was in high school and did wrestle, this is one of my favorite verses. Paul, I always thought, was a wrestler. He strikes me as someone who could be a wrestler. I do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul understood that we are in an actual wrestling match against the forces of evil, against the powers of darkness. This is not a game. There are real spiritual, demonic forces out there who want to kill you. Paul says, you're fighting for your life. That's what Paul means when he says, I don't box as though I'm beating the air. I box as though I understand. I am in a fight for my life because there are real demonic forces out there that are trying to drag your soul to hell. And yes, the demons understand the doctrine of eternal security. They've heard it taught. They just don't believe it. They're dumb enough to think that that can't be true. There has to be a way to drag sinners to hell or believers to hell. So they're not going to give up trying. But even if they don't drag a believer's soul to hell, which they cannot, they will make your life miserable if you don't keep your guard up. For this reason, Paul says in verse 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. He disciplines his body. Some translations say I strike or I punish my body. The Greek is an interesting word. It literally means to strike beneath the eye as to give a black eye. That's literally the meaning of it. Figuratively speaking, the word can mean to give a severe severe self-imposed discipline. The idea seems to be the way one might strike an animal to keep him in line or to keep him going, right? You control him. You control the animal by striking him, making sure he doesn't go to the right, to the left. The idea is that Paul is essentially saying, I am hard on my body in order to keep myself in check, to maintain self-control upon myself. Now, we have to be careful here that Paul is not talking about asceticism. He's not talking about, you know, going without, denying your body, you know, going, moving out into the desert and wandering around in sackcloths and ashes. That, that's not what he's talking about. It's for the whole idea of you know, monks and monastery all came from. He's also not talking about things like self-flagellation. You know, that was popular in the medieval church. Monks and priests would flog themselves for their sins, right? Paul talks about beating his body. That's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is saying is that like a well-trained athlete who is meticulous, he is a well-trained athlete who is meticulous about what he eats, about getting to bed early, right? Every athlete, if they're serious about being a world-class athlete, man, they, they take care of their body. They eat right, they exercise right, they get to bed early, right? They, they stay away from alcohol, maybe every now and then, but you know they, they, they are just very careful about what they put into their body, how they treat their body. This is what Paul is talking about. Yet how often do we as believers do the opposite? I mean, athletes do this for a perishable reward. Paul says we are striving for an imperishable prize. Christ, there's nothing greater. And yet how often do we as believers do the opposite? We can't seem to get out of bed Early enough, with enough time to read our Bibles before work or school, because we stay up too late, watching things that we probably shouldn't be watching. Rather than feeding our souls with the good stuff, we feed our souls and our minds with crap, right? With spiritual junk food, spiritual garbage with the books that we read the magazines we read the tv shows we watch the movies we watch the the amount of time we spend on youtube or on the internet paul says i discipline my body like a well trained athlete why is he so extreme with his behavior look at the end of verse 27 Left Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul himself does not want to end up as one of those individuals that Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. People who live their lives doing all of the Christian things involved in Christian ministry only to end up hearing the words, depart from me, you worker of iniquity for I have never known you. That's tragic. Like the Pharisees, you have to understand that Jesus is talking about people who did all the right things. Jesus is talking about not just ordinary Christians that are just coming to church and going to Bible studies. He's talking about pastors and elders and deacons. He's talking about Bible study leaders. He's talking about men's and women's ministry leaders. He's talking about Sunday school teachers. He's talking about missionaries. People who will someday hear those words, depart from me, for I never knew you. But I spent my life on the mission field. Well, good for you, but you did it for the wrong reasons. However, we need to be careful not to take these warning passages such as this one and warning passages such as Hebrews chapter 6 and just write them off since once saved, always saved, right? Because we believe that. We know that that's true. While it is true that the believer cannot, the true believer cannot lose their salvation, Once saved, always saved, if truly saved. That is absolutely true. It is also true. Listen, my friends. It is also true, according to James 1.22, for people to deceive themselves into thinking they are religious. That's what James 1.22 says. It is possible for people to deceive themselves. They think they are saved because they are doing all the right things. They are ministering to people. People are being blessed. I'm sure the Pharisees were a blessing to somebody. People are being blessed by them. People's faith is being strengthened by them. God is using them to grow the church. Yet many of these people will not win the prize. Because the fruit that God is looking for, the fruit that John the Baptist was referring to is love. Love. Love primarily for Christ. Which drive that person, drove Paul and will drive that person to do all that he does for the glory Christ, even if no one else sees what they do. So long as they know that Christ is being glorified, Christ is being honored, that's all that matters. They don't need recognition. They don't need a title. They don't need a position. They just want to serve Christ and glorify Christ. Love for Christ also drives the believer to want to be like Christ in every way, to possess and display humility, to want to love others as Christ loved others, to want to live in submission to God's word. It is these things which Paul paid close attention to. Paul paid close attention to his heart so that in the end, he himself would not be disqualified and hear those terrifying words. Let's pray. Our gracious God, heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we reflect upon the words of of Scripture and as we reflect upon the example that Paul is giving us from his own life, and the exhortation that he is giving us, that we would run as though we truly want to win the prize. Father, we pray that you would help us to do just that. We pray that we would not take the Christian life lightly, that we would run after Christ with all of the effort that athletes run after a prize that is perishable. We pray that you would give us the zeal, the desire, and the energy, and the strength to focus on our heart, our own motives, so that in the end, we would not be disqualified. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.